Alonzo leading off. He's two for three tonight. He launches one out to center field. Mullins going back to the warning track at the wall. It's out of here. Pete Alonzo gives the Mets the lead with a leadoff home run in the bottom of the eighth on the first pitch thrown by Harvey. And the Mets lead for the first time tonight. Hi, this is Emily Nyman, and you're listening to Breaking Balls. Welcome to episode 38 of Breaking Balls. I'm your host, Emily Nyman. I'm joined by my co-host, John Snyder. You can find us on Twitter at BreakBallsPod, or if you're feeling brassy, give the Breaking Balls hotline a call, 631-820-7377. We made it to our last episode of 2020. And not only is it our last episode, but on the day that we are recording, which is Thursday, the 17th, we are 60 days until pitchers and catchers are supposed to report and 105 days from opening day. So this is a, a quasi milestone episode for all parties involved, I guess. I, I was going to say who's counting, but apparently everybody except me on the Breaking Ball staff is counting. Well, that's why you don't have to worry about it, because we got these numbers down I, for I get you. the info fed to me. I'm in a good position right here. And I mean, let's be honest, everybody, even though the vaccines are now being released and that's great news, I don't really see the season starting on time, but I also didn't think that this season in 2020 was going to happen at all. So take that take with a uh, grain of salt. (laughs) That's fair. Still not much happening on the hot stove for either the Mets or the Yankees. Actually, no, the Mets, they signed James McCann since last recording. Yeah, that's a done deal. That's uh, that's good to go. We're actually going to talk about McCann uh, a little bit later in the episode, though. There's some other Mets stuff that's worth talking about. We're not going to go too depth into this. We finally nailed down our GM. We uh, we, we mentioned this last week, but uh, it's Jared Porter, who was the assistant GM for the Diamondbacks, is now going to be the guy for the Mets. It's almost a little uninteresting in that it's kind of exactly who they said they were going to pick all along, right? The interview was just like all the other stuff. It's been exactly what you want to hear. His vision seems to align with Sandy and Steve and all that. The real reason I bring this up is that there was an interesting contrast because I don't know if you heard, but an interview with A-Rod was released kind of on the same subject. He was talking about uh, what his vision, and if we remember looking back, uh, he and J-Lo were uh, one of the, well, not one of, they were really the only competition that Steve Cohen had. And I use that term competition lightly because they they were never really there with them, but they were posturing for sure. They needed a loan. How gauche. Well, well, we anticipate we'll be able to make it back. And like, no, no, no. So anyway, so he kind of clarified what they saw in the Mets and what they wanted to do with the Mets. And uh, listen, Emster, I know A-Rod's your boy, but uh, I feel like we dodged a bullet here. First and foremost, just in, in, in the statement, some of this like, corporate talk I just hate. It's like, well, we thought we could really uh, energize and turbocharge and all this stuff. It's like, okay, first (laughs) off, speak to me in English. Okay, that's first and foremost. But they're saying that they looked at it like an intellectual property, which, okay. But then they went on to go and say that baseball was a small part of it. They saw it as an opportunity for uh, J-Lo to get a deal with Live Nation for music at City Field. They wanted to revamp SNY. They wanted, they really wanted and I, I'm trying to balance it here because, you know, we talk about how it's a good thing accepting that baseball is an entertainment product, right? But at the same time, if I'm a fan of a team, I don't want the owner talking only in terms of entertainment. 
You know what I'm saying? So that's why it's, it's kind of a fine line because it's easy to say, like, I'm complaining about the stuff that we've recently kind of said, like, oh, well, you know, it's entertainment. Like, we need to accept that. But I want the I want the owner coming in talking about the baseball team and anything that surrounds it. That's all extra. And that can come. You know, you want to talk about City Field and whatever. But just looking at what A-Rod was saying, uh, it, it seems like they were not on the same page as Steve Cohen. And I feel like maybe it would have been fine, but I really don't think that we would be sitting pretty like we are now if A-Rod had gotten it. So I mean, to be fair, Steve Cohen is an anomaly. Yes. So now A-Rod is saying all this stuff because the deal is done. It, there's no putting that toothpaste back in the tube. So he might as well just be like, hey, if you're going to ask me, this is what we were planning. And... I agree with you that you're definitely better off with Steve Cohen because any team would be better off with someone who is a fan and has $14 billion in their pocket and doesn't need this to make any money for them because they don't have to pay back any loans or anything. So you're absolutely better off without A-Rod and J-Lo. And I feel like that sort of thing that A-Rod said is, is more in line with what every other owner does and how. And that's why he said that that was their plan because that's been the successful plan for so many other owners in the game today who don't have $14 billion. So if you remember, we had said, this is months ago in an earlier episode, I don't even remember which one, that A-Rod, we speculated, would be a good owner because he's such a baseball nerd who loves the sport so much, he's obsessed with it. And so now reading this, I wonder, like, would it have really been that bad with nothing else to compare it to? Or because in these this short month, whatever it's been, two months, I've already been so spoiled by Steve Cohen as my owner that anything less than that just seems like bullshit that I don't want to touch with the 10-foot pole. I think that it's definitely the latter. Okay. And But also the former, too. I think that, like, you wouldn't have known any better if A-Rod and J-Lo came into the fold because it would have been, like, any other transition. Yeah. And you may have even had excitement regardless of what they said or did because it just wasn't the Wilpons. So now that it's not like your stereotypical owners who have some money but not Cohen money and you have Cohen you have no reason to try to like imagine what you would do or not do if someone else owned the team because it's a totally moot point now no that's a great point because even like just to wrap it up the last line of the excerpt that I have here is A-Rod saying we felt that we could buy this being the Mets for 2.35 billion and over time make this a 10 or 15 billion dollar holding company much like the Fenway group has done over in Boston and I have to remind myself like that's kind of normal right like I I being you know talking about the Mets are in the abnormal in the best possible way situation here and something like yeah we're going to try and you know do this and then build up the equity and make our money back that's normal so I'm <laughs> I, I have to keep checking myself and you know correcting myself before I disrespect myself you know <laughs> I was hoping you were going to go there with that. So when I was like, please do it, please finish this out. (laughs) I wish that I had some exciting things to report about the Yankees. I mean, this is now like, I feel like it's week 50, but it can't be because we're only in episode 38, but nothing's been happening. The Yankees haven't made any moves and it's mainly because they don't have any huge moves to make. They're going to end up signing LeMahieu. And that was the only thing that kind of came up this week was Joel Sherman, a noted hack from the New York Post. <laughs> noted shit stirrer. <laughs> he just tweeted that, you know, his sources or whatever said that the Yankees and LeMayu were $25 million apart in whatever their negotiations are. People, of course, of course, flipped out. 
assuming that it's, you know, LeMahieu wants this and the Yankees are not willing to give it to him or whatever. And it's like, have none of you heard of negotiations? Every single contract negotiation you've ever heard of, even like someone like Derek Jeter and the Yankees, any of his negotiations, they were whatever X amount apart at some point. That's how negotiations work. They then come to a common ground if they can, and that's what happens. So why are people losing their minds? Like as if the Yankees should just throw money at LeMahieu, like as if he's Mike Trout in 2012. It's such, it's so funny to me because it's another case of people being so inconsistent with how they view ownership. You know, they'll take the side of ownership, but right now it's like, why are they not throwing DJ everything that he wants? What do you mean they're 25 million? You got 25 million, throwing 25 million. It's like, yo, it's December. Take, I said this last week, take a breath, calm down. Like it, it, I even heard Cashman in an interview this week say that DJ LeMahieu is their number one priority. It's going to get done. Like just tr- try and enjoy the holiday season a little bit, you know, and enjoy Christmas. Take a breath. Like you'll get him. That's such New York sports though, because oh, totally. I saw on Twitter, it was either today or yesterday, someone had a poll up asking who people felt the most overrated player in the National League was. And the choices were Trevor Bauer, Cody Bellinger, Javier Baez, and Bryce Harper. Of course, Harper was winning because this was someone who's a Mets fan. So all Mets fandom, obviously, and you understandably hate Bryce Harper. But it really spoke to the fact that Mets fans are already viewing Trevor Bauer through the the lens of homerism oh, yeah. by not picking him. And he's not even on the team yet. <laughs> right. No, but he is. Don't you understand, Emily? He is. I mean, he. I think he's in a land somewhere in New York, but it was like crazy. He was not, he's only had one good season. Well, I, I really get a kick out of to bring and it back. And it was 60 games. That's a good point. But to bring it back to LeMahieu, uh, I got a kick out of, you know, people are, and it's natural, we talk about homerism. They're really overvaluing him right now. You know, it's like, hey, he's a great player. The Yankees are going to pay him, all that stuff. And there was one tweet, you may have saw it too, where some guy was like, you know, I can't believe the Yankees aren't paying one of the greatest hitters in their history. It's like, of all the teams to make that comparison, like, just off the top of my head, I'm sure I could name like 25 Yankees that are better hitters than DJ LeMahieu. And I'm not a Yankee fan. That's not even a deep dive. Like, holy shit, a little perspective, people. I mean, there was even a poll done this week and it got like 2,000 something votes, which is obviously not indicative of anything, but it's a lot for Twitter. And... It was the question of who was the better hitter as a Yankee, Robinson Cano or DJ LeMahieu. <laughs> LeMahieu won this poll, and I, I really, I mean, I, I was just about to say I'm speechless, but we all know that's not true. I couldn't believe it. And don't get me wrong, when you look at DJ's two, or actually only like one and a third season in New York, he was he's been unreal. He has absolutely overperformed certainly my expectations, and I'm sure basically everyone else's expectations too, but he's only had total 817 plate appearances. Robinson Cano had like 8,000 plate appearances or something like that. Like the number of plate appearances that LeMahieu has had as a Yankee represents only 15% of the amount of total plate appearances that Cano had as a Yankee. And Cano was able to maintain the level of play that DJ LeMahieu had in 2019 over the course of that decade. But people are like, well, you know, technically, because his number, you know, his weighted runs created is higher. So technically, that means he's better. And it's like, no, that these numbers have context. And the context is sample size. So 
when the sample size is really small, like LeMayhew's, it skews those numbers. So that doesn't mean that he's a better hitter because he had a better 1.3 years. Like, I couldn't believe it. And even people were even saying the next day on a different poll that LeMayu was a better hitter than Derek Jeter. I was just going to bring that one up. How fucking funny was that? <laughs> Which, I mean, on one hand, I was kind of like, I was kind of psyched because never is there ever usually chinks in the armor when it comes to DJ, uh, DJ, Derek Jeter. And no, you were right, DJ, different DJ. I know, it was confusing thread yeah. because people kept on saying DJ and I was like, wait, are they talking about Jeter? Listen, I love LeMahieu. I love him on the Yankees. I want them to sign him to a reasonable contract for the kind of player that he is. But people now thrusting him into the greatest Yankees of all time conversation or trying to split hairs. And they were like, well, you know, Derek Jeter was a good hitter, but you know, DJ LeMahieu is a more complete player. And it's like, are you fucking high? DJ LeMayu is not one of the greatest players of all time. Derek Cheater is. Comparing the two is unfair to both, even to Cano. It's unfair to them, and it's unfair to LeMayu because it's just fucking ridiculous. These people are setting themselves up for disappointment. Even if he does very well, anything short of a monster season, they're going to be disappointed. And it's going to be hysterical, and I'm going to love it. The news broke this week that the Cleveland Indians will be dropping their name Indians, not next year, because as John pointed out the other day, they obviously have a lot of merch sitting on the shelves that they can't just then throw in the trash. So they want a year to sell all that shit, and then they're going to change their name in 2022. Which I feel like they could have rolled that out a little bit better, because the announcement went out that the Indians are changing their name, and there's a level of, okay, we kind of see this coming. You know, the Redskins are now the Washington football team, and they're going to apparently be christened something else, which was kind of a weird in-between. It's just like, yeah, we're going to change it. Well, what are you changing it to? Uh, give us a year. I, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> we were not expecting you guys to ask us that. So the Indians, I mean, I was going to say to their credit, but maybe it's more to their detriment. They announced that they're changing the name. Everyone gets all hyped like, oh, what are they going to be? They're going to be the Cleveland baseball team or are they going to actually pick a name? It's like, no, turns out they're just going to be the Indians again for another year. It's like, what did you get us all excited for? Like, and and it comes back to, you mentioned it, yeah, they have shit to sell. There's stuff with Indians on it and eyes. Well, well, I guess no more Chief Wahoos, but there's plenty of stuff that they need to get rid of before they can rebrand. And of course, it brought out the brigade of people who suddenly care about the Indians. Like, I literally had someone in my mentions on Twitter whose handle was NYY fan since 97 was... Well, that's singing not a the good swan start, song. but keep going. <laughs> was singing the swan song for the Indians and was like, they're just going to erase history? And it's like, what the? Erase? Do people think that they're going to like hit a reset button and that organization is just never going to talk about the past? And you go on Baseball Reference, their franchise page just starts from 2022. It's like companies rebrand all the time. You don't actually care about this name change and you're not going to care in a week from now. So going online and like, commenting on every thread you can about it to talk about why you hate it, you are expressing the same outrage that you're claiming to hate. Well, and I particularly love the history argument because it's like, well, if you actually had a decent grip on history, you would know that teams changed names and locations way more back then than they do now. You know, I mean, you want to look just at the Cleveland team. Leave alone the Cleveland Spiders, which, side note, as we talked about in our top three months ago, that's totally what they should change the name to, but they're not going to, but we'll get to that when they do it. 
But even just the Indians have been the Naps, the Broncos, the Bluebirds, the Lakeshores, the Rustlers. And that's all in like, a, what am I looking at here? That's like a less than 30 year, 20 year period, something like that. Like they changed a lot back then. So just, just roll with it, man. I mean, it's it's such a simple thing. It's like, it doesn't really mean that much to you that like, if some people are offended by, like genuinely offended by it, then then who cares? Let's get rid of it. It's we've we've gone over this before. It's such a simple thing to me, and it's like you know what? Not for nothing, because you know me, I'm a big football fan. Everyone was up in arms about the Washington football team. It's like, oh, what about the Redskins? We're gonna miss the Redskins. People love the football team now. It's become such not even ironically anymore. Like people genuinely like it. There's a call for them to keep that. And so really, like, even if Cleveland were to do the Cleveland baseball team, at first we would probably say we hated it, but give it a season or two. You get used to it, you like it, and I guarantee you'd be just as pissed if they tried to change that five years down the road. You get attached to it. And when there's only one team from a city, you end up calling it by the city name a lot anyway. Like, I refer to the Indians more often than not as Cleveland. Right. So, and that's just me, but... Also, the his- back to the history thing real quick. If you are that much a student of history, you would understand why the name should be changed. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're laughing, but it's not really funny. Like, at the end of the day, it's, it's really not. And the fact that it's even, like, such a hot topic like this, and, and, and it evokes such, such emotion from people on the other side that are upset about the change, is just something that is bizarre to me. Because even if you... St- step outside of if you have a problem with PC culture or whatever, is it really that big of a deal, people? Would you care? Did you care when Fleet Bank changed their name to Bank of America? Were you going online and complaining about the name change? You weren't. So what's the difference here? It's a brand. And, you know, I would also direct our audience, if any of you have not yet read the article by Jeff Passan and ESPN about this, it's great. And he kind of goes into, I can't remember all the team names that he, that he talks about, but especially like starting in like the 70s into the 80s, tons of college programs were the Indians and they're not anymore. One of the big ones was Stanford used to be the Indians and now they're not. And you know, and at the time, like, yeah, okay, people made a big deal about it. You know what? They got over it. And now no one even, you had to be reminded that those things existed because it it doesn't matter. It's just a team. It's just a name, you know, like, let it go, man. Let it go. Let it go. Let it go. Yeah. I've actually never seen that movie. That might be up for an instant replay one of these days. Oh, my God. Speaking of instant replay, we had our poll last week, and we had three choices to refresh everyone's memory. It was Home Alone 3, The Santa Claus 2, or The Santa Claus 3. And The Santa Claus 3 ended up splitting the vote, so there was a tie between Home Alone 3 and The Santa Claus 2, and because... We are dedicated to giving our listeners an amazing experience. John and I decided to do a double feature instant replay next week. We are going to be live tweeting the Santa Claus 2 and Home Alone 3 on the 22nd, which is a Tuesday, I believe, right? Uh, Yes, it's Tuesday night. And we are going to shoot to start at 7 p.m. We'll be tweeting about it and stuff leading up to it, but I hope that some of you guys join us because it's a lot of fun. I, I loved your election analogy there because that means that Santa Claus 3 is like Ross Perot or like Jill Stein. The Green Party. Yeah. <laughs> so before we go into our voicemails. 
you guys may remember, uh, it was either last week or the week before, I congratulated Emily on making the fantasy football playoffs in the league in which we both play. So I, you may have remembered, <clears throat> had a, uh, a little first round bye. No big deal. You know, solid record. But so Emily snuck into the playoffs as the sixth seed, and she actually unseated the number three seed who has won our championship twice before, our friend Jared. Uh, Jared's out in Vegas now. Sorry about that, buddy. Them's the breaks. So, uh, guess he didn't bet on this one, huh? Okay. I'm not giving you credit for anything, though, because now Emily and I are playing again this week. You may remember earlier in the season, I, uh, I bested her in our one uh, in our one matchup, and now it's her chance to try it again. She wants to fuck around and find out, and uh, well, she's going to find out because I'll let you know something, Emily. Uh, we record this on Thursday, as our audience knows, and. Uh, there's football games on Thursday night, and my tight end, Hunter Henry, just scored 17 and a half points. It's above his projection, and uh, I got to tell you, I'm feeling pretty good going into this weekend. And I'm feeling pretty good because, as John knows, and so do all of you, I'm playing with house money here because I got nothing to lose. I'm not the football person. I didn't even remember that there was a game tonight. I mean, I set my line up yesterday, so hopefully anyone that's in it, and if they were playing tonight, they didn't get hurt. So I'm in a situation where if I win, amazing. If I lose, John should beat me. So this is this what it's like to like be a perennial losing team? I don't know. You tell me. Is that what it feels like? Because <laughs> I got to tell you, this is some pretty weak sauce coming from you right now. This is I feel like you're setting yourself up to lose. You're setting yourself up with excuses. Oh, I don't care. It's like, you ever watch that show, The League, about the fantasy football league? Oh, yeah. It's like when Andre doesn't make the playoffs. Like, you guys have no idea how relaxing this is. I'm just not worried about anything. Like, nah, you're going down, Emster. Keep talking that shit, John. We'll see. We'll see who's reporting what come 2021 since this is our last episode. So we're going to leave everyone on the edge of their seats here. <laughs> all right. All right. And without further ado, we are going to get right into the voicemails. Our first voicemail is from Brad. Hey, it's Brad. I called last week uh, before you ended up saying that you were going to talk about Dave Dombrowski, that piece of shit. Uh, with Dave Dombrowski, he had been known for depleting minor league systems, uh, which he had done for the Detroit Tigers and the Boston Red Sox. Uh, the Detroit Tigers are six years after um, letting Dombrowski go, and they're still trying to fix what he broke. And he didn't even get them a World Series championship. And then he did trade like 20 players from the Red Sox farm system. And I don't know if any of those prospects were really anything big. I mean, you had Moncada, that was probably the biggest name there. So in a sense, it's they didn't really amount to much. But giving away like four prospects for Craig Kembrell to the San Diego Padres, yeah, uh, given four prospects for Chris Sale, I could let that slide. Uh, his biggest problem is the salaries and the contracts of what he gives. He has a tendency with, I'll just use the 2018 Boston Red Sox. He rewarded Nathan Nivaldi for what he did in that one World Series game with a four-year $68 million contract. He hasn't had a healthy season yet. Then you had Chris Sale, who he gave a 
an extension to, and he's just flat out sucked. I wouldn't say sucked, but he hasn't shown up to his ace capabilities. He gave Pierce a contract, and he amounted to nothing for that one year. And then trying to rectify everything, he ended up getting Andrew Kashner. So I just wanted to let you know uh, about Dombrowski uh, and what the Phillies can expect in the future. Love the show. Listen every week. Keep it up, guys. To be fair, Brad, Dombrowski brought a World Series to Boston a few years ago. And yeah, the Tigers, they didn't win anything, but Dombrowski brought them Miguel Cabrera. He brought them Prince Fielder. He brought them Max Scherzer. And he put together a team that should have won a few World Series. Didn't pan out that way, but they made it to a few World Series. And that's really all a GM can do. They can't guarantee anything because this game is the way it is. It's how it plays out that you just get to the tournament and then whoever's hot at that time wins, even if it's not the better team. So on one hand, I could I feel what you're saying because now the Red Sox are terrible. But on the other hand, you have to either tr- make trades or sign players in free agency to win. So it's one of these things that what, do you, what would you rather have, a, a top-tier farm system or have that 2018 World Series? Because a lot of times you can't really have both because you have to give some to get some. That makes sense. Yeah, no, you don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater, right? Like, you know, you have all these complaints. And I'm not saying that they're not legitimate, but they're all couched in the fact that like, yeah, but you got a World Series out of it. And it's like, yeah, maybe the years after a World Series suck because the team's in the worst place. It's like, okay, well, you get the World Series to tide you over through those years, you know? So it is kind of like, listen, had Dombrowski dismantled this farm system and had nothing at all to show for it, completely legitimate to complain about that. But he did what he was hired to do, right? So it's kind kind of a dicey argument. It's like, you know, so do you want all that reversed, including the World Series championship? Where do you draw the line? And... Not for nothing. Granted, Chris Sale has been injured and didn't play in 2020. And I think he had an injury-shortened season in 2019. But even with that being said, since joining the Red Sox in 2017, he has amassed 17.4 FWAR, which is pretty good. I mean, he's had two of his best seasons of his career since he's been on the Red Sox. So I'm not really sure what you mean when you say that he's sucked. Because he has not sucked. Is he hurt? Yeah, that sucks. But he has performed very well. And you can guarantee that he will perform very well when he comes back. Brad, thank you so much for your call. And our next call is from Nick. Based off the best baseball Twitter tweet, rank these six Twitters. Your favorite, Eric Cubs, <laughs> Cohen, Bauer, Carabas. Rachel Luba and Jeff Passan. And, uh, you know, who do you think will sign first between DJ and or the Yankees getting a pitcher, whether it's starter or reliever? Hmm. Ranking those Twitter accounts. Um, I'd probably have to go Cohen, Passan, Carabas, I guess... Rachel Luba, Hubs, and Bauer, I guess. I mean, to be honest, a lot of these accounts are just 
really popular accounts and they don't necessarily have incredible content. I was just going to say that. Yeah. A lot of these people are, they're, they have followers because they're famous and, you know, sometimes they'll report interesting stuff, but it's not necessarily because they're funny. Right. So, I mean, those accounts are, are great for what they are, but they're not like my go-to favorite accounts. And as far as who's going to get signed first, I think that the Yankees are going to try to sign DJ before they do anything else because that's going to cost them the most money this offseason. So I think they're going to want to get that one out of the way and then see whatever their budget is and how much they have left afterwards to go after whoever's left. Go after the scraps, I guess. Nick, thank you so much for your call. And our next call is from Frankie. Hi, this is uh, Frankie. I have a question directed just to Emily real quick. I apologize, John. But does the back of your hand hurt from bitch slapping Eric Hubs today? That's That was my only question. I'll hang up and listen. Frankie, that is a great question. To catch everyone up, me and Barstool's own Eric Hubs, their Yankees representative, I guess, he has lifted some tweets of mine that are uniquely my tweets because I'm the only one who's ever made that joke. Um, I made a joke last year about Thyro Estrada was fucking shot and he spent less time on the IL than Jacoby Ellsbury. And it was a popular tweet. Everyone loved it. I've since tweeted a few iterations of it because it's funny. And he stole one of those straight up. And I have been busting balls about it for the last few months, but never uh, tagging uh, uh, him. Uh, 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 you've been what? Oh, sorry, breaking balls. Thank you. Stay on brand. <laughs> and I never tag him or anything. But I guess he was searching his name or follow someone else and saw that I was busting chops about it in a thread, not even on like a main tweet. And he, of course, had something to say, saying that I made it up and I'm constantly talking about this. And I, of course, schooled him because the Internet is forever, everybody. And you can do easy (laughs) searches on these websites. And I found the screenshots. So that conversation ended pretty quick. And I wouldn't have even gone there had he not been kind of a dick and protesting as much as he was. It was a little sus. He knew he could have kept scrolling, but he didn't because he knew that I'm right. And he wasn't expecting me to, I don't know, clown him and embarrass him, which if he had taken five minutes to look at any of my other tweets, he would have saw that that was probably coming if he acted like a dick to me like he did. This just all tracks for Barstool for me. That's all that I'll add. (laughs) Frankie, thank you so much for your call. And Eric Hubs, if you're listening, thank you for allowing me to ghostwrite your tweets. Our final call is from Quinn. Hey, it's Quinn. So I said this sort of as a joke earlier today, but the more I think about it, the more plausible it sounds. Uh, So if Bauer breaks the news of his own signing, will the reporter guys have to credit him? Like, is John Hammond going to have to tweet Trevor Bauer has signed with wherever at Bauer Outage had it first? That is actually a great question. And I at first want to say yes, but then when I think about it more, the people who know about the signings, any of them first, are obviously the team and the player and their representative. So you imagine that from there, one or both of those entities then tell whoever their favorite go-to source is and then that person breaks the news. If the player is breaking the news, I feel like whoever, whatever reporter gets it first will then be the source because Bauer is not the source. He's in the deal. See, I, 
I don't know if I necessarily agree with you there, because you yourself said that it's three parties that are privy to a trade when it first happens, right? The player, the team, and the representative. So is the player removed from that equation as far as announcing it for any reason other than that's just not how they've done it? You know, he's trying to like do things differently in his his big offseason, his big post Cy Young offseason. I wonder if that's part of it. There's part of me that's like, why couldn't he? You know, I know that we do things a certain way, and but in this circumstance, I mean, he would know, right? Why can't he announce it? Why wouldn't he get credit? Oh, I think he can absolutely announce it. I'm just wondering if then when all the reporters regurgitate it, usually they will say, oh, you know, so-and-so signed with this team. John Heyman had it first because they're taking that news from oh, him. Oh, yeah. No, no. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. So I'm not saying that he can't break the news. He definitely can. But whether then like the reporters will then say the news and then say he broke it, I'm not sure. I don't really know if it's necessary. I mean, more so than I care how they break it, I kind of just want them to break something. And I'm almost at the point where I'm like, I don't care if it's the Mets. I'm really getting tired of, should I sign with this team? Should I sign with this team? Like, just shut the fuck up and sign with somebody. I'm, I'm kind of tired of it, if I'm being honest with you. Especially since... Yeah, he won the Cy Young in a 60-game season, not taking that away, but it's not like he's the the most highly anticipated free agent of the last few years like we've had in the past with Cole or Machado or Harper where we were looking forward to their free agencies for years. No one gave a shit about Trevor Bauer until he uh, cut his finger with a drone and then when he got upset and threw the ball over the fence in center field when Terry Francona was taking him out of the game a few years ago. Besides that, no one gave a shit. So he's trying to drum up excitement that's just not really there, I feel like. Well, yeah, and I mean, I guess I guess good on him for being his own hype man. Like, I guess, you know, somebody's got to do it, right? But I almost feel like the more that he leans into himself and tries so hard to sell himself, the more time I've had to, like, really think about what he offers as a pitcher. And it's like... Okay, yeah, I mean, sure, if he does what he did last year for a full season, then okay, that'd be great. But he's not young. 2020 was less than half a season. Like, there's a lot of things, you know, the more I think about it, the more I'm like, is he going to be that next year? Like, do we even want him that badly? Hey, maybe he proves me wrong. Maybe he is. But I, the more he sells himself, the more I question it. Yeah, I agree. And Quinn, thank you for your call on that question, because it's actually a perfect segue into our final segment of 2020, which is who is going to leave their 2020 performance in 2020? John and I got started on this conversation because we were discussing Trevor Bauer and we both kind of agree. I mean, actually, no, I shouldn't speak for John. I know that I feel that he is absolutely going to regress and the pitcher that he was in 2020 is not going to be anywhere near the pitcher that he is in 2021 and not in a good way. Right, yeah, and I, I, I'm at the point where I'm, I don't know, I'm inclined to agree with you now, but ask me if he signs with the Mets, and maybe I'll reevaluate that. I don't know yet. So yeah, it, it really raises some questions. So like, so the first player that I looked at, for example, was, and I thought this, it, maybe it's even a little bit easy because I'm so confident about this, but Pete Alonso. I really don't think that 2020 Pete Alonso is the true Pete Alonso. And I mean, hey, it's especially when you go back and look at his traditional stats, it's a rough comparison, man. You know, both compiled and otherwise, even when you adjust for the size of the uh, of the season that they just played, it's rough. So I'm putting my faith in a few things. First and foremost, that rookie season. My God, that is not, I mean, you want to say it's not a normal rookie season. It goes beyond that. It's an all-time great rookie season that so many players that have gone on to, 
the best careers haven't been that good as a rookie, set that kind of record as a rookie, you know? The other thing is like, so this happened in his second year, and what year is more synonymous with a slump than your second year? The sophomore slump, right? It's it's alliterative for a reason, people. Especially when you have that unbelievable of a rookie year that the expectations now are so high that he almost is in an unwinnable situation where he would never be able to right. meet that. And that's what I'm saying. And then you combine that with, and I know that it's the same for everybody. You know, everybody had to play through 2020, the circumstances on and off the field. But you can't discount that from this equation. What would have already been a challenging sophomore season for him for, just like you said, Em, for the expectations that we now have. Then you add the extra layer of all the COVID stuff on top of it. I'm almost not surprised that he struggled, you know? And I got to put my faith as I am more and more with my participation in this show. Um in advanced stats and stat cast, right? Because you look, not all of his numbers were that drastically different. And a lot of the advanced stats were closer than some of the traditional stats. You look at his walk percentage and his strike percentage, they're almost the same. They only dropped by a very small amount. You look at on stat cast, you know, the actual uh, exit velocity was pretty much the same. Very small drop. Uh, his hard hit percentage, all small drops, you know? So it's the kind of thing where... It's partially, yeah, I'm a Mets fan. I want him to do well. I want to be optimistic. But especially, and I know we say not to lead into the eye test. That's not what I'm doing here. But especially after what I saw in 2019, it would be really tough not only to accept, but to expect that to not come back in some form. Is he going to have another year that's as good as 2019? No, I'm not expecting that. But I think we're going to see a much better Pete Alonso than we saw in 2020. I feel the same way about Gary Sanchez which is why I chose him for this thought experiment because he, to say he struggled this year is an understatement. He was just didn't have it this year, but what is encouraging, like John just mentioned about Alonzo, is that his hard hit percentage went up from the last year and the year before, and it was back at the same level that it was back in 2016 and 2017 when he was unreal. And that's really important. He's still seeing the ball well. He was starting to see the ball even better towards the end of the season. And I'm not trying to sell anybody on Gary in 2020. It happened. It's over. But all we can do is now move forward. And Gary is a prolific hitter. He is the arguably the best hitting catcher in the game, even with what happened in 2020. And fastest to 100 home runs in Major League Baseball history. Like These things aren't accidents for lack of a better term, it's not like he fell into hitting 100 home runs in the shortest amount of time or, you know, he hasn't fallen into 41.3% hard hit balls, if that makes sense. He's never going to be a high average guy. So I feel like that is something that's a hang up that a lot of fans have that they are tying his success purely just to batting average. But he's not that hitter. He's not going to get on base a shitload. That's not his job. He's getting up there and he's taking fucking hacks. He was not seeing the ball too well in the beginning of this year, but so far in the Dominican League, he's been crushing the ball, hitting the ball the opposite way, even hitting singles for all you people that love that kind of stuff. So I think that the player that we saw in 2020 is going to be left there and 2021 for Gary Sanchez is going to be another breakout year and he's going to make a lot of people eat their words. I don't know what the fuck you're talking about because I saw that video of him striking out in winter ball, so he's doomed. That 10-second clip of him, he's not doing any work. You want to sum up Gary Sanchez as a player? Here it is. Um, So 
We wanted to also try and flip the script on this a little bit, right? So this is, I'm not going to say quite a bad faith argument because now we're kind of switching it up where I'm going to take a Met who did pretty well in 2020, or at least, you know, was trending upwards in 2020 and argue that maybe we're in line for either some regression, which is relative, or uh, or maybe not quite what we're expecting. So I took a stab at this with James McCann. And I want to preface this by saying I'm excited by this signing, as I've said previously, um, and I do think he is an upgrade for us. But it's a good thought experiment. So the big thing with James McCann is when he was on the Tigers from 2014 to 2018, he sucked. Like straight up. He, he was he was a bad baseball player. And any metric you want to go by. So yeah, you look at his uh, weighted runs created plus, they exploded. His WOBA exploded. And I'm talking about in 2019 when he joined the White Sox. All these numbers suddenly skyrocketed for him, right? So all we really have of this, you know, offensive improvement that we're being sold in James McCann is a season and a half, not even, 2019 and 2020, right? Another knock against him is, and you know, no catcher will catch 162 games. You know, they're going to get day games after nights off, stuff like that. You want to save their knees. But looking at the White Sox in 2019, he played in 118 games. And even last year when we had, or last year, this past season, when we played 60 games, he only played in 31 of them. So he, while putting up those numbers, was very much a part-time catcher. And I know all catchers are part-time to some extent, but when we look at guys like... uh, you know, like Pudge, I know we looked at, for example, he was up in like the 130s, 140s in his prime, you know, taking off 15, 20 games a year, maybe. Um, McCann is playing. Uh, yeah. Ooh, let's not even open up that door again. Um, but yeah, so all of that goes to show that there's a chance that maybe McCann isn't going to be what we're expecting. Something else, and this is uh, referencing a conversation I had with our stat guru, the always brilliant Max Greenfield. When I was talking to him about McCann, one thing that he brought up that was really interesting was McCann's pitch framing. And so, you know, we talk about my my journey of advanced stats that I'm on right now. This was a new one for me. And apparently that's not totally my fault because this is some pretty new stuff uh, in all senses of the word. So I'm going to leave it to Max in a later episode of our Breaking Balls Breakdown to really get into the nuts and bolts of this. But suffice to say that the metric as it stands on fan graphs uh, it's all negative numbers that even continued up into 2019. He had a negative nine. I'm going to ask Max to clarify exactly what that means. But we had a negative nine in framing, and then in 2020 up to a 2.3, which is the only season he's had with a positive framing stat. So there's a lot to question here. And one of the questions is, have we been evaluating catchers the right way? And I think that that's a bigger conversation for another time, but... We look, I've been sold McCann purely as he's going to be an upgrade offensively, which, okay, we're basing that all on a year and a half with one team, right? He's supposed to be an upgrade as far as his arm, which I'm not going to argue. I believe that. But his framing numbers are worse than Ramos had last year. So that really, you kind of got to wonder. It's like, okay, well, the Mets always have been built as a pitching team. You know, we talked about last year was the first year we kind of weirdly reversed that where our offense was showing up and our pitching wasn't. But so if you're trying to get those pitchers back on track and you have a guy that ranks among one of the worst framers in the league, I wonder how much the scales kind of balance out on either side of that, you know? So I don't know. We could we could get a great James McCann, but... It could well be that we don't get what we were being sold when we picked him up and we're told to be excited that we got him instead of Real Muto. 
Now, this next entry by me is not going to come as much of a surprise, but please hear me out before you get upset. No! Sorry, you go ahead. DJ LeMayhew, I believe, will experience some regression in 2020. Now, much like James McCann signing, there's no way the Yankees signed DJ LeMayhew expecting the sort of seasons that he's had with us. So I think that the regression isn't necessarily a bad thing. I think that especially if we're only basing it on 2020, which was a tiny sample size, you have to assume he's going to regress because he's not a power hitter. I know he's had now two years, and I think he had one other year in 2016 where he hit with a little bit of power, but the vast majority of his career, he gets on base. He hits for average. He's he's a hit machine, but he's not always hitting for power. He's found some power on the Yankees, but I, I feel that you have to expect that slugging percentage to go down in the next few years, especially since he's going to be 33 this season. But I think that it's it's best for hedging expectations, really, as fans to not expect LeMayhew to be the best hitter on the team because, first of all, he's not. Even in, in 2020, even 2019, his statistics were great and he was a solid hitter, but he's still not the best hitter on the Yankees, not even the second best hitter on the Yankees. You're telling me that a guy that's a better hitter, according to a Twitter poll, than Robinson Cano and Derek Jeter? This is unbelievable. He may be better than Derek Jeter and Robinson Cano, but he is not better than Luke Voigt. <laughs> okay, you got me on that one. <laughs> but seriously, and again, I feel like I'm giving this qualifier every time I talk about DJ because people love him. Obviously, they're putting him up in, in the echelon with Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig at this point as all-time great Yankees. This isn't a knock at him. This is just assuming something based on a sample size, which the larger sample size shows us that he's just not the hitter that he has been for the last year and a half or year and a third. So I think that his average will stay high. He'll still get on base a little bit, even though he doesn't walk much. So his on-base percentage might slip if the slugging slips, but we'll see what happens. I hope I'm wrong. It would be awesome if he (laughs) maintained this level of performance if they sign him, but If they sign him, I just don't expect him to be that guy every single year. You're putting the DJ on a pedestal, man. Why does everybody keep telling me that? You know what your problem is? You're putting a pussy on a pedestal. That's the second time I've heard that. What is the pussy on a pedestal thing? So for our final top three of the year, John and I decided to look back on the last 37 episodes of Breaking Balls. Uh, A little stroll down memory lane. And our top three this week is our favorite top threes of the last year. So, John. Well, hang on. Let me just uh, pick up the pieces of my brain up off the floor after my mind exploded. Um, So meta. Our top three, top three. Top three, top three, top three, top three. I'm going to stroke out. Okay, so. (laughs) My... Number three of our top three, top threes. Um, This is going back to episode 25. Uh, You remember earlier on, there was a streak where, and I've actually broken out of this, which you must be proud. There was a streak where, especially early on, I couldn't help myself but reference other sports when we were talking about baseball. I would always bring up, especially football, because I'm a big football fan, but also basketball and hockey. So going back to episode 25, I got a kick out of it when I got to hear your favorite football movies. Because I already know, you know, all your baseball likes and dislikes. So that was a fun little uh, 
And I mean, we can agree. It was another one of those where, you know, you guys know at this point, like M and I, on a lot of these uh, non-baseball top threes, we kind of tend to agree anyway. So it was one of those where like, yeah, my number one was Rudy and M picked something else for show. But like, come on, Rudy's the greatest football movie ever. What are you going to do? So my number one, and I'm going to have to ask DJ Bingington to set me up with a little, you know, because come on, number one is Rudy, Rudy Rudiger. It's always been Rudy, baby. Um, no, but seriously, Rudy, 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 Rudy. Rudy. <laughs> seriously, though, it, it, it's the best football movie I've ever seen. It's in terms of like a movie to make a grown man cry, it's the stereotypical. It, it's the uh, it's the field of dreams of football movies in that regard. Debatably, and heavy emphasis on debatably, Sean Astin's best role. I know Lord of the Rings, Samwise Gamgee. I get it, but Rudy's damn good. Let's be real here. He's so little. Oh, he's so little. <laughs> My number three was from episode twenty-one, and it was our. Top three worst single game performances. Oh, yeah. And I love that one because it was so highly specific that that alone made it hilarious to me. And just searching through the annals of baseball history and finding the single worst game performances was fucking amazing. I mean, Chan Ho Park, that poor son of a bitch, two grand slams. Chan Ho Park is still on the mound for some reason. I don't know if Davey Johnson fell asleep or if he got hit in the head with a foul ball and was uh, rendered unconscious, but Chan Ho Park stayed in this game. This was the top of the third inning. Then the bases get loaded again, and Tatis gets back up and hits another grand slam. Not until the second grand slam and the third home run in the inning was Davey Johnson like, all right, you know what? Maybe we should pull this guy. So that's when Park came out of the game. They brought someone else in who then only pitched to one batter and got the final out. The moment that these people want you to forget the most that happened in their life, we're, we're zeroing in on it. We're looking for it. I love it. I know. I almost maybe in the future want to spin like a, a where are they now and, and try to contact all of the people that we put on that list yeah. to see like how are they faring after that single day performance. <laughs> By the way, a uh, brief aside before I get into my number two, I don't remember which episode it was, but now everyone can go back and search through the earlier episodes. We did a top three where we talked about what the Cleveland Indians should be named. So that's kind episode of 15. It was episode 15. Okay, great. I didn't write it down. So, on to my number two of our top three, top three, top three, top three, top three. This is not going back too far. This is episode 30, and I really liked the Halloween candy top three uh, for a couple reasons. One, for some reason, as much as people love hearing us talk about baseball, they really like when we talk about food, too. You notice that? They really latched on to that between the breakfast sandwiches and the Halloween candy. Like, I guess we know what we're talking about, though, right? So, it, it, was, it was fun on that level. I also liked... I love arguing semantics, which I mean, could be another title of this podcast, I guess. But somebody got into it with me about like Halloween candy and my my picks were bad because like Crunch Bar was my number one. Yes. And I had to defend myself like, well, no, this is Halloween candy. It's it's a subjective experience that each person goes through as a child and depends on location and your neighbors and yada, yada. So it, it just became way too in-depth for what's your favorite Halloween candy. And that to me is kind of the whole point of what we're doing. So I really enjoyed that. Get 
Oh yeah. All right, so let me kick this one off, yeah. if I may. Kick off this delicious um, top three. Can I kick this off since it is Halloween season with a very appropriate RIP to Butterfingers, which used to be my number one back in the day, and they changed the recipe, and it tastes terrible now. Smaller RIP to Kit Kat. They don't use enough chocolate in it. But to my top three. So uh, no one is laying any fingers on Butterfingers anymore, is what you're saying? No, I I, I, I refuse. I, acti- I actively refuse. Yeah, the tagline's that dead. That tagline came back to bite them. Nobody better lay a finger on my Butterfinger. I also really enjoyed that because without it, I don't think we would have gotten that amazing coming-of-age tale from Emmy about sticking the box of nerds up her nose and having to go to the hospital. <laughs> you know, I, I, I have to thank you because I forgot about that, and, uh, and that, that's just delightful to remember that that's a thing that exists. My number two, and this one is, is, is fairly wistful because it's from episode 19, which was titled That's So Mets, and it was our That's So Mets top three, where John and I just listed the things that were the most Mets things to happen in history. And I say that that is wistful because I feel like those days are going to be behind us now. John and I, we did the research and we looked into the Mets history. Seeing as how the Cespedes debacle just went down, we figured we'd go through the books and try to find the most Mets moments in there illustrious history so well, maybe you did research i just had to pick which freaking one i wanted to go with <laughs> that's true i mean or it was less research and more like a supermarket sweep sort of thing where i just i was like saying. what do i pick like there was a shortage come on i was just going through the aisles and just dumping horrible met stories into my cart and just running through <laughs> so i was just gonna say uh, i talked about how often there's overlap between our top threes and this was one of them where i was gonna pick that and what i was gonna say is that in retrospect I like listening to that one even more because it seems like it's more in the past now. You know, when we actually did the segment, it was kind of, you know, I had to kind of bite my tongue a little bit and and roll with it because we were still owned by the Wilpons at that point. And now it almost feels kind of quaint. I'm like, oh, remember those? (laughs) Those were good times. Those were good times. It's funny even. It's it's, it's wistful. So for my number one uh, on our top three, top three, top three, top three, top three, uh, this is going back to episode 23. The Todd Father, part two, our Oscar award-winning episode. (laughs) Um, And in that one, we talked about our favorite all-time MLB facial hair. And the big reason this stuck out for me, it wasn't even high on the list, because we had some funny stuff in there, like, you know, Johnny Damon and some of the all-time great stashes. You picked Scott Spezio. (laughs) When he was with the Cardinals, with that That bright red... Yeah, the bright red salt patch. And I don't even remember if it made the final cut, but you and I had this really funny conversation where we imagined it like, because um, he had some uh, a run-in with the law, if I remember correctly. Yeah, Quinn called in and let us know about that. Yeah, yeah. And we, we, were, we were picturing it like um, uh, a family circus cartoon where Jeffy's like running through the backyard and then he draws like the dotted line to show where he went. And it's just Scott Spezio running from the cops <laughs> and you just see the bright red soul patch streaking across the streets and yards of the neighborhood. So that imagery alone, that's my number one top three for sure. It became a whole thing in Boston. And uh, I just, I very distinctly remember that. Before Jason Wirth was doing it, there, there was Johnny Damon looking like a caveman. Yeah, that was really fun as a Yankees fan to watch a homeless person hit a fucking grand slam in the ALCS. That was amazing. Loved it. (laughs) My number three was Scott Spezio, 
who I also kind of hated because he was on the Cardinals in the early 2000s, who, and they were an unreal team. They won a bunch of World Series during that time. But I literally don't remember anything about him besides being on the Cardinals and also that stupid soul patch that he had right under his lip, just above his chin, that he dyed bright red like he was in the fucking Sum 41. And I just, it's been burned in my head. Maybe that was the point. And this is why. Because now he's 10 years later showing up on my top three favorite facial hair list. So you made it, Scott. Congrats. And thanks to that top three, actually, now anytime I talk about Scott Rowland, I think of Scott Spezio, which (laughs) obviously has been a lot since we've been talking about him for the last week or so. My number one of our top three, top three, was from episode 11, which was titled A Foil-Wrapped Hot Dog to the Face. (laughs) Yeah, it was. And that title came from the top three that week, which was our top three mascots. And to be honest, I didn't know that half of the mascots that exist in Major League Baseball existed until I did the research for that show. And the fact that the mascot for the Royals was embroiled in some legal trouble because he threw a foil wrap hot dog at a fan's face and it blinded him in one eye or something like that. So between that and Dinger, the mascot for the Rockies hatching on the field when they presented it. I mean, (laughs) it was just such a funny episode that it had to be my top one. All right, so let's start off with number three. So my number three was Slugger with three R's, the mascot for the Royals. He's like a lion and his mane is shaped like a crown. Get that spelling right. Yeah, this, yeah, it's Slugger. <laughs> so this mascot, he was born on April 5th, 1996. And the reason I chose him, because there was a, lo- a long list. I chose him because uh, he was embroiled in a little bit of scandal. In 2009, a spectator was injured by a hot dog thrown into the stands by Slugger. So, <laughs> so no damages ended up being awarded. You know, the person sued the team. They were saying that the hot dog toss was not an, an, a non-essential part of the Major League Baseball game, but then there is on the back of the ticket that, you know, you can get hit by projectiles from the field. So <laughs> they ended up at a stalemate and no damages were awarded. So Slugger really skated on that scandal. I'm still not fully over you picking the Philly Fanatic as number one. That was fucked up. Oh, yeah, I did. I was just about to deny it, but I'm looking at my notes from that episode and I totally did. Yeah, no, it's fucked up also with the PH. That about wraps it up for Breaking Balls this week and 2020. Should all acquaintance (laughs) be forgot? We want to thank all of our listeners for your support all year long and hopefully into the new year. And I I just want to take a moment to thank my co-host and my cousin slash my best friend, John. This experience has been as amazing as it is because I've been able to do alongside you and also to DJ Bingington. None of this would happen without you. He encouraged me to start this project and he's encourages John and I every single week and he keeps us on track and he puts together this show that you all love listening to so much. And I, I can't thank you both enough. And to everyone listening, thank you so much for your support. We love you so much and we can't wait to bring you amazing content in 2021. And we hope everyone has a great holiday and a happy new year. And if you're feeling brassy, you can always give the Breaking Balls hotline a call. Maybe leave some New Year's resolutions. 631-820-7377. 
or you can find us on Twitter at BreakBallsPod. You can also find DJ Bingington on Twitter as well at DJ B-I-N-G-I-N-G-T-O-N. And we will catch you guys next year. Misdemeanor on the floor, pretty boy, here I come. Pumps in the bump, make you want to hurt something. I can take your man, I don't have to sex something. Hang him out the window.